parenting, bubble wrap, and the perfect diet. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm Mike McCarg, your host. The internet calls me Science Mike. And, uh, well, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a guy who likes to study things and enjoys explaining them. And I answer questions honestly and without judgment. And that's how this program works. We do it every week, and it's a lot of fun. And for now, let's get it started. Are you one of the 8 to 12% of people who skip the announcements every week on Ask Science Mike? If so, I have an announcement for you. Don't skip the announcements this week. I've got some really cool stuff coming up. Uh, and it comes after the events loop. So listen to the events, please. And then you might hear uh, a couple of announcements that you really care about. Although I don't know why you wouldn't care about my events. They're amazing. Uh, uh, August 25th. Hello, St. Andrew Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch. That's a suburb of Denver. So Denver folks love to see you. Saturday, August 25th, I'll lead a centering prayer meditation. And the next morning, I will be giving a message in both of their morning services. So also, the Liturgist Gathering is on in London, October 5th and October 6th. Tickets are actually selling pretty well on that one. So if you're thinking about joining us in London, don't wait till the last minute. We may sell out on that one, which would be really amazing. Ken Men, a retreat by the liturgist, which is a treat about repairing masculinity and learning to be people who are connected in real relationships and, and part of solutions to social problems. Uh, that's going to be October 12th through 14th, and that is sold out. We do occasionally have someone ask for a refund, though. So uh, you should sign up for our email list to be notified uh, if tickets become available or we announce other retreats. But honestly, people rebuy the tickets faster than we can announce that someone asked for a refund. So uh, just if you want to go to, to Ken Men October 12th through 14th in the L.A. area, uh, just keep checking on the website uh, and seeing if tickets are available. Uh, October 17th in Placentia, California, I'm doing an Ask Science Mike Live. And believe me, I love doing Ask Science Mike Live and then sleeping in my own bed. So that's a good one for people in the Los Angeles and Orange County area. Uh, October 26th and 27th, I'm going to be at Evolving Faith. That's an event put on by Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie. and includes a truly unbelievable lineup of speakers. I'm excited to go that as an attendee. Uh, I'm doing a conference on Centering Prayer November 3rd and 4th at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Greeley, Colorado, so you can check that out. And then that's what is in the near future in terms of events. Fall is really, 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 really busy for me. In addition to those events, I'm doing a lot of private events, so plenty of chances to see me. And if you've thought about bringing me to your college or your conference or your uh, church, whatever, whatever organization might be interested in my interesting take on the intersection of science and faith, go ahead and send in a booking request because uh, winter, like the first couple months of 2019 and spring are already pretty packed, and I've already got falls 
uh, events lined up for next fall, fall 2019. Sometimes I am available for last minute bookings, but it's generally better if you can book me six months to a year out. Yay, by the way. How amazing is that? Except for summer when no one brings me to speak. And if they do, no one shows up. (laughs) I don't know what it is about summer and my people, but you are not into my events during the summer, although you do listen to the podcast. So thank you for that. So anyway, more information on that, go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the events tab and you can see my events. Another thing, and I mentioned this for the first time on the last episode, I've started a thing in LA called Church Together. It's very simple. You go sign up for a special email address. This is not signing up for my main email list. This is just a special email list. And basically, some Sundays in LA, I'll email out the week before and say what church I'm going to, not speaking at, going to. And this is because I know some of you, you don't know what you think about God. You don't know what you think about uh, Christianity, but you just would like to maybe go to church sometimes and you don't like to go by yourself. So I thought we could just go sit together and have lunch afterwards. And uh, this um, is a little more popular than I thought it was going to be. Several hundred people have signed up for church together so far. Knowing LA, a tiny fraction of them will actually show up though. There's still a chance I can announce a church and no one shows up. Believe me. <laughs> LA is a special place. So if you're interested in that, just go to mikemccarg.com slash church together. And if you can't spell my name, it's M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E. An easy way to remember that is M-C-H-Argue, like the word argue, like let's argue about where to go to lunch. And then you can spell my name, mikemccarg.com slash church together and sign up. And I expect in the next couple of weeks, I'll announce the first church that we will visit together and that a church must be affirming of all gender identities and sexual orientations, uh, or it will not be a church that we visit. Uh, and it has to ordain people of all gender identities and sexual orientations, obviously including women. So two, two things I've got going on. Now, the third thing, this is incredibly cool. Uh, when I went up to Toronto, I went to an amazing conference up there with a a lineup of speakers that I really enjoyed. And I met a person named Chris Davies, who is a queer clergy person. And Chris has this incredible thing that are queer clergy trading cards. So this is not an ad. This is just something I'm into. You can learn about this by going to queerclergytradingcards.org, or you can find them on Amazon. And you can order these little packets, this is the sound they make, of trading cards. Uh, And every trading card is a different queer person who is clergy in a local church. These aren't uh, platform building people. These aren't like touring speakers. These are people who uh, work with one congregation. And I just love them so much. So my goal is to collect all of the queer clergy trading cards. Because what happens when people say, when I get asked to go to an event, I'll say, well, uh, I'll say this is a conference. Do you have people of color and queer people speaking? And they'll say, well, you know, uh, yeah, we've got people of color speaking, but we don't know any queer clergy, which might be true. They may, they may not. Uh, but if you get these trading cards, then you immediately know 
at least 12 because you get 12 cards in a pack, although there can be duplicates. So let's say statistically very likely you'll get at least nine or 10 queer clergy folks into your awareness. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give away some of these packs. Uh, I ordered several on Amazon. I ordered four. Um, I'll order more. All you have to do is go sign up for my email list. You go to my website, AskScienceMike.com or MikeMcCarg.com. At some point, it'll pop up and ask you to join my email list, at which point you are entered to win a set of these queer clergy trading cards. And of course, you don't have to win to get these. You can order your own by going to QueerClergyTradingCards.org. And then what I'm going to tell you is every time I do an event, I'm going to bring some of these cards with me. So if you show up and you've got your queer clergy trading cards and there's someone you're looking for and I've got that person, uh, I will trade any of my cards for any of your cards to help you complete your set, okay? Even if it's one I don't have a duplicate of, I'm just going to bring the cards available for trading uh, and I'd just love to start uh, Science Mike and the Liturgist Queer Clergy Trading Card Ring. I don't think anything fits the intersection of my progressive spirituality and innate nerdiness better than these trading cards. I just absolutely love them. Every queer clergy person, uh, you get who they are, you get their pronouns, you get their superpower, their kryptonite, and their walkout song. (laughs) Oh, it's so wonderful. I just can't stand it. Uh, So for example, here we have the Reverend Dr. J. Johnson. So this is his card. His superpower is queer liturgical mysticism. His kryptonite is bad spelling and grammar. And his walkout song is Like a Prayer by Madonna. (laughs) And of course, it's got a picture uh, in this case with a dog as well, which is a nice, wonderful bonus. So if you're not as into queer clergy trading cards as I am, Uh, I'm sorry for whatever emotional blockage you have that prevents you from enjoying life. Uh, (laughs) But I would highly encourage you to get into this uh, trading card hobby with me. Let's make this the next Magic of the Gathering. You can do so by visiting QueerClergyTradingCards.org. You know, I should have mentioned this right up top. Sorry. This is a special edition of Ask Science Mike. It's a, it's a patron-only edition. All the questions this week came from patrons. And uh, if you're not a patron, that might seem super not fair. And I get it. There is a little bit of favor happening here in exchange for money. Although, honestly, it re- takes $1 a month to become a patron. Uh, but these are the people that keep me going. Like, I don't mean emotionally, although that's a part of it. I mean paying rent and eating. <laughs> so... Um, at the end of the summer, it's always tight. There's less events over the summer. I don't make much money. Basically, patron income is like all of my income during the summer months. And uh, I just am so overwhelmed by gratitude for that, that I wanted to do a show here at the end of summer devoted to the people who made sure that I ate all summer. And I'm just so thankful for them. So every question this week came from a patron I will periodically do patron-only shows. So, of course, to be a part of that, you could become a patron. You can learn how at AskScienceMike.com. Okay? Really, this, this, this whole episode is a love letter to the patrons. And our first patron with a question is Mark. And he says, 
As kids, my brother and I were delighted every Sunday morning when our father would pick up donuts for us before church. The donuts always came in a paper sack, and when we had finished eating them, Dad would put the sack in his mouth, blow it full of air, and pop it with his hand as loudly as he could. We loved it. To this day, I enjoy that if there's a small paper sack around. It's the same with bubble wrap. Popping all the bubbles could almost be described as cathartic. I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy popping at least a few, kids and adults alike. I'm hesitant to confidently state that this enjoyment is universal, but in general, why do we humans find popping things like bubble wrap and paper bags so satisfying? Uh, Well, Mark, I love this question because I've never had it ever or any variation of it. Questions like that are rare at this point in the Science Mike career arc. (laughs) So thank you for originality. Big bonus points for you. Unfortunately, I think your question is conflating separate phenomena. I think there are different things at play between uh, popping a paper bag and making it go boom and why we love to pop bubble wrap. Let's start with popping a bag. Humans love to be startled, or at least often. We, it can be fun to be startled. Sometimes it's genuinely terrifying. But in the context of uh, feeling safe or secure, something like a thrill ride or a horror movie, or yes, assembling or family member jumping out and startling you can be a lot of fun because the jolt of adrenaline and the flight or fight response once we realize we're safe can actually just be fun and enjoyable. Now, not everyone enjoys that. Some people are traumatized by it or frightened by it, but many people enjoy being startled in safe circumstances. So you had that, which is a known and documented phenomenon with human behavior, and you had it in the context of really positive conditioning. You had parental attention and affection as part of a routine. You had your family socialization going on. And so this this pop, this bag pop, uh, which started being fun just because it was startling, became associated with really positive memories and experiences. And every time you blow up and pop that paper bag, you're going on this mental neurological journey back to a time that was very safe and enjoyable and affirming, right? So it's kind of a a very rich and wonderful nostalgia at play here with you popping a paper sack. Bubble wrap, totally different thing. Um, One study has actually compared groups of grad students who got to pop two sheets of bubble wrap with a group that didn't get any bubble wrap. And they actually found that the group that did the popping was calmer and more alert after they popped the bubble wrap. So they were calmer than themselves pre-bubble wrap popping, and they were calmer than the control group the entire time. So we think uh, the act of popping bubble wrap probably serves as a particularly tactile an auditory engaging form of fidgeting. Think about shaking your leg or tapping your toe on the ground or any kind of nervous energy. Fidgeting can actually help us fight stress because it helps us relax our muscles and engage in self-soothing behaviors. And so for whatever reason, the, the movement, the repetition of bubble wrap, the structure of going bubble to bubble, the sound, the auditory reinforcement we get from doing it helps us easily move into this act of 
self-soothing to a measurable benefit to our alertness and level of calmness. Uh, So they both involve a very small explosive decompression (laughs) for a very uh, weak atmospheric vessel. Um, that's what you're hearing is, is, is kind of this percussive action of, um, gas being forced out of a, a, a closed container. Uh, so you're hearing a small explosive decompression, but why those things are enjoyable in this case, I believe come from two completely unrelated effects. Our next question came from Hannah and it reads, It seems like many religious traditions have unhealthy beliefs like patriarchy or authoritarian leanings baked into them. In your view, does atheism slash secularism have similarly unhealthy beliefs baked in? And if so, what are they? Well, this was a really tough question. I want to start by like affirming the question because I don't hear a religious critique of secularism here. I hear uh, a preemptive, yeah, preemptive measure to avoid slipping into some form of institutional or collective toxicity uh, from someone who might have experienced that in a religious context. I could be wrong. That's what I hear. And in that vein, I really honor the spirit of the question. And I think any true skeptics uh, would encourage people to be skeptic of themselves and skeptics' movements. Uh, otherwise, it's not skepticism. But a couple of things to note. The first thing to note is atheism is not a thing. It's not a movement. It's not a belief system. There's actually only one belief required in atheism, and it's actually a lack of belief, a lack of a belief in any god or gods. Uh, and so there is no other assumptions baked into atheism at all. There are no beliefs associated with atheism at all. So to, for this, have this question to make sense, We've got to talk about secularists and humanists or maybe new atheists or anti-theists. People are taking uh, something more than a lack of belief in God in their view. There's actually, you can't form a worldview with atheism alone. It's impossible. It's also hard to generalize a movement that is relatively small and extremely new historically. In ancient times, the patriarchal assumptions of religious faith was not really viewed as a problem. Um, So it's very difficult for me to say what future generations could view as a problem in secularism, especially because there may be things that aren't in secularism now that will grow in the future. But I I want to do my best to honestly engage the question. Uh, And so I'm going to go with some anecdotal observations of things I noticed when I was an atheist. One, I noticed that Skepticism is often confused with a rhetoric that is primarily pedantic. Um, it's easy to, to have a pedantic approach and response to something someone says and have that sound clever and insightful when really it's just pedantic. <laughs> um, some atheists can be prone to scientism. They can actually take scientific insight beyond what science is meant to do. Uh, and that's when you have scientism instead of something that's scientific. Although I kind of cringe at the word scientism because scientism is often co-opted by religious fundamentalists to discard real science. <laughs> like, for example, global anthropomorphic 
climate change uh, is often called scientism, when in fact that is actually good science. Atheists can discount the importance of emotion that's based on uh, the brain activity required for a person of faith to become an atheist. It requires a highly prefrontal-oriented approach to evaluating reality, and often because of the amount of emotional activation evolved in religious experiences, some atheists become dismissive of feelings in general and over-prioritize the power of logic and cerebral thinking. Uh, Some atheists can use a hyper-individualized lens when looking at politics and social sciences. That's common in a lot of groups. That's also a very deconstructed white guy thing, uh, is the super, super hyper-individualized lens, Uh, which is like a valid lens. It just is not the only lens. (laughs) We are individuals who exist in a collective society. Uh, So I think you really need individualized and collective lenses and use them interchangeably uh, to evaluate every situation to get a better sense of what's happening. Uh, Traditionally, skeptical communities have been very white and very male, although that is changing. Um, But at first, many skeptical communities, because of the hyper-individualized lens, were resistant to the notion that they were very white and very male. But I'm having to really dig deep here. Uh, Studies generally show that atheists are very moral people, they're good marriage partners, and they're reliable parents. So I, I don't see a lot of the same institutional baggage with free thought movements and skeptical movements as I see with religion, but they're also very new, right? Part of the reason religions have baggage, they've been around so long, they've been so attached to power, um, and we know that power is a corrupting force in human psychology, and secularists don't have a ton of power to be corrupted by. They don't have widespread social influence or political power, especially not in the United States. So as good skeptics, we can best uh, prevent the kinds of unhealthy beliefs from infecting free thought movements by continuing to be skeptical of our own thoughts, of the leaders of those movements, and uh, never taking any information for granted and always understanding we can be wrong. Our next question is from Ricky, and it reads, There has to be an optimal human diet. There is for every other animal on Earth. Why is science so unclear on human diet, or are we just ignoring the facts because of capitalism and our own desires? Man, what a great question. You get asked that question all the time. It's so hard. <laughs> but I think I think that we can start getting at why this question is so hard right in the question. We say there's an optimal human diet. There has to be one because there is one for every other animal on Earth. But what do we mean by optimal diet? Do we mean animals in the wild tend to be healthier than humans? I mean, they have horrible mortality rates. <laughs> so, so what is an optimal diet? Optimal for what? In the view of natural selection, the optimal diet is one that allows you to survive your childhood, mate, and then help your offspring do the same. And natural selection is unconcerned with anything that happens after that. So if you're a wild human living outside of civilization and agriculture, the optimal diet is the one that gives you enough calories to deal with a very demanding life. An optimal diet is that juicy, juicy animal that you and your friends just killed 
which you gorge yourself on. And that's that's relatively hard to get meat. So most of the time you're foraging on grains, which aren't like agriculture grains. They're much harder to come by. Plant matter, fruit, we can find it. It's mostly seeds, by the way, without our agricultural uh, power reshaping it through artificial selection. So the impulses we have to seek out fatty foods and salty foods and calorically rich foods were optimal because of caloric scarcity in the environment we developed in. But natural selection won't start selecting against those things until it causes us to be unable to mate or survive childhood. And as a species, compared to wild animals, we're doing a great job surviving childhood and mating. Although affluent people mate much less. We, we you know, we are not, uh, natural selection is unconcerned with heart disease that takes you out in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s. There's no mechanism to weed that out. Uh, now, so we have to assume what we're, we mean something different by optimal then. What, what we mean by optimal, I guess, is that uh, we're in good physical health, that we have a high quality of life, and that we have a long life or a high life expectancy. Maybe that's how we define an optimal diet. And oddly enough, Americans are uniquely obsessed with the optimal human diet while also being uniquely and singularly unhealthy uh, physically as a society. Uh, And I think this notion that there is an optimal human diet is part of that. I don't think there is an optimal human diet. Your diet can and in fact must vary based on your activity level, based on your genetic factors, your food sensitivities, right? Uh, And looking for these optimal nutrients and taking a nutrient-based view of food leads us to be obsessed with the wrong things. I've noticed all the time there's a good food and there are bad foods. I've watched eggs be good foods and bad foods and good foods and bad foods. For a while, saturated fat was the enemy, so uh, we started using plant-based fats, created trans fats, figured out they were even worse. And then we have these superfoods, right? Right now, I can't turn my head in Los Angeles without someone telling me how great coconut milk or coconut butter or coconut oil is good or how great olive oil is good. And that that's fine. Those things are good. But psychologically, once we call them good foods, we overconsume them. And coconut butter has just as much fat in it as dairy butter. <laughs> so if because it's good, suddenly you start using more coconut butter than you would have used dairy butter, your diet is not getting more optimal. Your diet is getting less optimal. So there's a lot of complexity here. Absolutely, capitalism plays a role. The need to sell foods that are processed, that are patentable, that are marketable. There's not a lot of companies that are going to subsidize a buy broccoli campaign because there's so many broccoli companies, right? So it's much easier to sell Cocoa Krispies. That's a, you know, we got a trademark on Cocoa Krispies. We make it in a factory, but broccoli is a more nutritious food item than Cocoa Krispies. Uh, and I think to get toward an optimal diet, we have to start moving away from being obsessed with nutrients and towards thinking about whole foods, not the restaurant chain. I mean, entire food items. The best summary I've seen of a reasonable approach to diet was by Michael Pollan when he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. 
Now you'd hear eat food, and you'd say, that's ridiculous. Of course I eat food. No, he means food food, not, I think he says, edible food items. What is food? Food grew from the ground. Food had a mom or a dad, right? He says, you know, avoid ingredients you can't pronounce. Don't eat things with more than five ingredients. Basically, eat the things around the rim on the outside of the grocery store that are closer to the loading docks because they have to be constantly replaced with fresh stock because they expire. What are those things? Vegetables. Fruits. Unprocessed meats, right? That just have been butchered fresh meats, not frozen. Um, Although, uh, well, I won't go down a a rabbit hole on fresh versus frozen in uh, meat items. Eat actual food. Don't eat too much. Understand that your appetite uh, developed in food-scarce environments. And so most of the time, you need to stop eating before you feel full. Uh, So that's practicing portion control. And then mostly plants. The majority of the food you eat as a human should be plant matter. And that's it. When I follow that approach, by the way, I lose tons of weight without counting calories, uh, without obsessing over nutrients and macronutrients. Uh, my, My blood panels come back better. When I eat food, not too much, mostly plants, I do great. The problem is... I like pizza more than food. <laughs> Honestly, like I've lost some some reasonable weight lately, uh, about a dozen pounds. And we went to a pool party with some friends and they ordered pizza and I couldn't stop eating the pizza. I ate so much pizza to the point that my friend, I think, charitably closed the pizza box so that I could not see it anymore. Maybe he didn't know, but it felt to me like this great, beautiful gesture of, I got you, buddy. (laughs) The salty goodness of pizza combined with the fattiness of the cheese, it's irresistible to me. I mean, I understand what people talk about when they talk about addiction because of pizza, and I'm not minimizing your experience with hard drugs here. I'm saying I've known addicts and what they describe with their alcoholism or their heroin addiction when they had that seems awfully similar to me and pizza (laughs) and that's not good right it it takes a huge effort to eat food not too much mostly plants for many of us but also we shouldn't demonize food items there's nothing wrong with pizza uh as an occasional thing i eat when i'm having fun with friends then pizza is just fine when pizza is a problem is when it's twice three times a week oh i don't know eight times a week then pizza is a problem, right? Uh, anyway, if, if you want to know more, check out Michael Pollan's books. He's got a couple on that. He's also got a great book out on psychedelics recently. He's a good journalist who does due diligence when he researches the topic, and uh, he's done a great job with food as well. Okay, our next question from Melissa is short, sweet, and multi-layered and difficult. <laughs> The question is, what does science have to say about how parenting changes people's personalities? Yikes. First of all, I don't know what you mean by the question. Uh, Do you mean, how does becoming a parent change you? Or how did you change because of how your parents raised you? Those are very different questions, and I think are both reasonable ways to read that question grammatically. 
<clears throat> so I'm going to answer both because I love my patrons so much. First question is, how does becoming a parent change someone? Uh, according to science, you get more tired forever. <laughs> uh, you get more unhappy. You get poorer. You have less disposable income. You have less money saved for retirement. You have fewer social relationships. So parents go through a great thinning of their uh, social web. So those, those are not great things. Uh, but your child's smile lights up your brain with dopamine in a way few other things are capable of. You experience the release of oxytocin in greater amounts more frequently, both moms and dads. You, you have a house that in some ways becomes more affectionate. Children make us more tender. You basically go through a great trial with great rewards, and how we go through that individually depends on a lot of factors. And it also impacts our parenting style which goes with how we would answer that question interpreted the other way. How does being parented change someone? Uh, how do our parents shape us? And the most helpful model I've seen here comes from research where you imagine two spectrums to measure parenting and the intersection of the two, two, those two spectrums uh, illustrate four distinct parenting styles. The first spectrum is how demanding is a parent now, I tend to be triggered by the word demanding. Uh, so in this in this case, think more like clearly sets expectations is demanding, not demanding, demanding. Although, as you'll see, it can be demanding, demanding as well. The other spectrum is how responsive is a parent. So we're, we're looking at two things, how demanding, how responsive. Now, if we look at a parent who is highly demanding and highly responsive, that parenting style is called the authoritative parenting style. So authoritative parents, they set very clear expectations about what they want to happen, but they're also highly responsive to their children's needs. So a highly responsive parent might see their child in conflict with another child. They may walk over. They may see uh, that their child uh, took a toy away from the other child because they wanted it. An authoritative parent would say, you have to give the toy back. Uh, we we don't take toys from other people and explain why. Um, and then respond to the child's questions and um, respond to their own emotional response. You know, if the child is upset by the toy being taken, then that's going to lead to a time of interaction and not just harsh correction, right? That's a highly demanding, highly responsive parent, which is called the authoritative parenting style. And kids who have authoritative parents are more likely than other children to have good emotional self-regulation. They're going to be more likely to have high academic performance, and they're going to be more likely to be socially accepted by other children. They're also going to be more likely to associate effort with success. That's an authoritative parent, highly demanding and highly responsive. Their uh, close cousin is the authoritarian parent who is also highly demanding, but has low responsiveness. So an authoritarian parent is going to set very high expectations, but not offer emotional support or conversational guidance. Uh, if you want to sum up the authoritarian style of parenting, uh, you could say spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Heavy emphasis on discipline, no emphasis on warmth or vulnerability. 
Kids of authoritarian parents are very likely to have authoritarian personalities. Think Donald J. Trump. Uh, they often have lower academic performance than kids raised by authoritative parents. They're often socially withdrawn. They're often unhappy children with low self-esteem. So authoritarian parenting measurably has bad impacts on children. Then there's a permissive parenting style. And if you're a permissive parent, you're have you're a low demanding, low demands, but highly responsive. So that means there's not a lot of discipline or expectation setting, but very responsive to children's requests or emotional needs. Permissive parents tend to let children say what they want to say, uh, stay out as late as they want to stay out, buy whatever they can afford to buy the child. Uh, they respond quickly to tantrums, all those sorts of things. I'm not casting judgment here. I am <laughs> explaining the intersection of low demanding, highly responsive parenting. What do we see among children with permissive parents? Uh, they're more likely than baseline to be impulsive, to struggle with academic achievement. They are more likely to abuse drugs, not use drugs, but abuse drugs in adolescence and in adulthood uh, than children, uh, just average children, I guess. Uh, then there is the rejecting, neglecting style of parenting. And this is low demand, low responsiveness. It means I don't set expectations. I'm basically not involved with my child uh, at all or very little, as little as possible. Um and children of, of rejecting neglecting parents have extremely low academic performance, extremely low social acceptance, extremely low self-image. They're often depressed. They're often very risky in their sexual behaviors. And they have the worst adult performance of any uh, group of children, worse than any of the other three. Now, go back to that first question. You get more tired. You get more happy. You get poor. I actually have a lot of empathy for why people become rejecting neglecting parents if they're in extremely difficult circumstances or they had poor parenting themselves same thing i understand permissive parenting sometimes it's easier just to give in i think most of us parents find that on different days we represent all of these parenting styles and that's i guess it's the trend over time that determines which group you fall in and therefore which group your children fall in uh, but one thing the research has shown is that a child's sensitivity matters. So some children are just less emotionally sensitive uh, innately, and those children are less impacted by their parents for good or for bad. So if you have a, a child that's not very sensitive and you're an authoritative parent, okay, very small shift in their behavior because of that. And the same way if you're rejecting, neglecting, uh, a child with low sensitivity uh, is not going to be as impaired. More sensitive children are more impacted by their parents for good and for bad. So sensitive children raised by authoritative, or excuse me, author, authoritative parents have extremely high performance and self-acceptance, top of the class, so to speak. Sensitive children with rejecting, neglecting are at the, the very bottom. So parenting is this interaction. Um, one thing I've learned as a parent is the degree to which I am partnering with my children in raising them, that I'm not like the boss, that this is a project we're working on together, uh, and I strive to include them in that and to have honest discussions with them in that. Um, 
And that seems to work out pretty well. Of course, my kids are 11 and 13. Uh, 10 years from now, I might tell you all just how wrong I was. Um, but yeah, parenting is a huge, huge deal. Uh, I'm going to put links for every question this week, but especially this one, if you're a parent, digging deeper into these four parenting styles and the corresponding research is something that I found to be super helpful, and it was fun to go through it again to answer this question. Well, there we go. Another Ask Science Mike in the books. Thanks to all my patrons for keeping me going. Thanks for submitting these questions. Thanks for voting on each other's questions. Thanks for running this whole show. Greg Nordine, man, thanks for the editing. Andrew Golucky, thank you for pre-production. Jeb Bodiford, thanks again for the theme song. Can't wait to see you in L.A. this fall. And for all of you who are listening, thank you for listening. I hope to see you at some events, and I hope to trade some queer clergy trading cards with you. I'll talk to you all next week.